Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel chapter 12 this morning and also put your finger in Revelation chapter 10. We'll read two different texts today. We've already studied Daniel chapter 9 and in that text Daniel the prophet received a vision of what we might call the end times or the consummation of the age. And he was given a lot of insight. In chapter 12 uh, God sends an angel again to visit with Daniel to give him some further information. And the text really ends um, with information but also with a question. But the question we're going to find is answered in Revelation chapter 10. So a little bit of reading today. So if you need to remain seated you can but otherwise let's all stand in honor of God's Word this morning. And let's begin our reading in the first verse of chapter 12 of the book of Daniel. And at that time Michael, stand up, shall stand up, the great prince, and we know Michael is a, we got called an archangel, and so one of God's mighty angels. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was, since was a nation even to the same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and to some shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they shall turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. And then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood another two, the one on this side of the bank of the river, and the other on that side of the bank of the river. And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, so we have an angel, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? You know, Daniel's inquisitive. He, he wants to know, well, when's the consummation of the age? When will these events that you've revealed to me unfold? And the Bible says in verse 7, And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, which held up his right hand and his left hand into heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever. He's ready to testify of a truth, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half. And this is a Hebrew idiom that would have been understood as three and a half years. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. So he's saying, well, at the end of a three and a half year period shall come the consummation of the age. And I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white, saved and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wickedness shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, okay, um, this is a whole other scene in the tribulation period that we have not yet got to, gotten to, forgive me, because we're looking at this, the judgments really coming from heaven. But during the same time of judgment, the Antichrist will come and present himself as the world ruler. He will 
lead the world in a level of prosperity while these early seal judgments are happening. After the first and a half years, he will go to the temple and he will declare himself God. He will stop what is said here, the, the sacrifices, and he will basically present himself as God. This is called the abomination of desolation. This is when uh, the devil proclaims himself God before a watching world. And that's what's being referred to in this text, which we'll get to that in some detail in our study. So again, verse 11, And from that time the day sacrifice shall be taken away, and that the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Blessed he that waiteth, and cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. But go thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest, and stand at the lot of the end of days. So he's basically saying, um, for our purposes today, that the end will come at the end of a three and a half year period of unimaginable uh, tribulation at a time when this Antichrist still rules. So now take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 10. And we see some similarities between that text and this one. But what I want you to see is the question that Daniel asked specifically, when will this be? Well, we have some guidelines. It'll be a time of tribulation, and it'll be a time when this Antichrist sets himself up, and there'll be an abomination of desolation in a temple that is yet to be built again. And it'll be three and a half years after that event occurs. But, but when is that in history? Okay, verse number one of chapter 10 of the book of Revelation. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. And his face was it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot upon the earth. What an unimaginable scene. And he cried with a loud voice, and as when the lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven. A very similar act of oath that the angel took in the book of Daniel chapter 12. And swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are therein, and the earth and the things that are therein are, and the sea and the things wherein are therein, that there should be time no longer. So this angel says, in response to Daniel's question, the end is now. This is the end of time. This is the consummation. This is when it's all going to be wrapped up. Well, when is that in history? Well, when this happens. <laughs> And that's what God is saying. Now, we'll have some clues, obviously. Well, hopefully not. Of course, as those saved today, you know, we believe the rapture will occur before the tribulation. But a clue for those who would be curious, and that's all it would ever be a curiosity, because it's not of great importance to know this specific time of season. But the end is going to come when God said it's going to come. The book of Deut Deuteronomy says the secret things belong to God. And so giving too much speculation to try to figure all this out is really not God's intent. The intent of the book of Revelation is not to give you a calendar. It is to open your eyes that these things are going to come upon the earth one day. So what manner of men ought we to be in the present? But verse 7, But in the days of the voice of the, seventh, of the seventh angel, which is not yet sounded, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God, this is the plan, 
the whole, the whole scheme of God from the creation till now should be finished. Of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall be, it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and there was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said to me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Our Heavenly Father, I pray the next few moments, as Lord, we contemplate your, your eternal word here, that Lord, as we would obviously be curious about the details of this passage, that Lord, we wouldn't miss the larger picture Lord, of the admonition that, Lord, not only did you tend, intend in John's day, but, Lord, the encouragement and the admonition you intend in this writing for our day. And so, I ask for your help with this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing. The book of Revelation, or what we call the Apocalypse, is a window into the world to come. It's a time when God will bring about the consummation of history, reorder and remake the cosmos. He'll displace the devil from his reign of terror upon the planet and judge fallen humanity and our earth and its sin and its wickedness and rebellion. It lifts us up for a moment into the glories and the wonders of the very throne room of God. As, as words have limits, words are still try to, are being used here to try to help us understand the, the glory of God that you know, resides in unspeakable light, unapproachable light. Um, we, we see there his entourage and his court and all of its wonder and glory. In chapters 4 and 5, it lifts up to heaven and it helps us see the throne of God. To view his worthiness and his magnificence and then see the worthiness of Christ, the only one who is worthy in all of eternity and all of time to take the scroll, the deed of human history, the, the end time events, uh, uh, take it from God and to see them fulfilled. We have tried to comprehend the wonders, the glories of the creatures surrounding the throne, the, the, the living beings, the seraphim, the, the cherubim, the, the uh, the, the living beast, uh, the witnesses, all those who stand before God. We find the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, God's unimaginable, grace-filled love for people like you and me, for His church. And discover again what the Bible has echoed over and over and over, that God will judge sin one day. Mankind is asked, as long as mankind has existed, you know, why God has not intervened? Why does God not uh, stop this wickedness? And even the martyrs under the, the altar of the throne room of God, those who died in the tribulation period, are asking God, um, how long until the consummation of the age and all the wrongs are made right? Well, God says that it will come one day, but He wants us to know that He will judge sin. And that mankind can either bear the wrath of God, and in the final consummation, 
in one of two places. You see, for us, those of us who know Christ, God's wrath for our sin has already been displayed and was displayed on the cross. Our sins require death. Our sins require judgment. But our sins have been judged. Wrath has been poured upon them in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He experienced our hell, our judgment, and He gave us an imputation. He gave us His righteousness. That's what grace is all about. You and I receive a gift we do not deserve. We, are experience, we experience mercy. And we, we do not get that which we do deserve because of the provisional work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the atonement on the cross. Sin can be judged there or you can bear your own sin one day. And that's what will happen at the consummation of the age when Jesus comes back at the eschaton, the second advent, at his grand conclusion at the time of the end of the tribulation. In the chapter we have studied so far, we see God's judgment now beginning to come to earth in these final days. We've called this the time of tribulation. It's really kind of divided into two two. Halves, the first two and a half years, the tribulation, the last three and a half years, the, the great tribulation is what we would call that. A seven year period that the prophet Daniel received revelation about, spoken about the other prophets and given insight to uh, by the New Testament. Ezekiel saw this day, Isaiah, Joel, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, and the other prophets. What the Bible has called the time of Jacob's troubles, the time of an unparalleled distress upon the earth, terrors uh, released from heaven and terrors from underneath the earth. In the first three and a half years, the consummation begins. As Christ received from the hand of God a seven-sealed scroll containing a record of human history, of the end of the world, the title deed of the earth, and the events of the tribulation. Six of the seals uh, up to chapter 10 have already been opened and unleashed. Humanity was loosened from its restraint. Uh, war, famine, pestilence resulted as a result of this. There have been great earthquakes below, wormwood from above, making all waters bitter, volcanic activity with mountains flung into the sea, destroying marine life and all the uh, commerce around the planet. The Bible tells us that at this point, one-fourth of all life on earth has already been destroyed. These are the beginning of sorrows, Matthew 24 tells us. This is all the first three and a half years. Mankind at this time of judgment trades martyrdom for salvation. Today we can be saved and for the most part live our lives. And yes, we live for Christ. In fact, all those who are godly Christ Jesus will suffer a measure of persecution. But in these days, almost universally and ubiquitously, those who are saved will be killed by the war, raged by the Antichrist and the devil. And this is the period we are studying. So six seals are now passed. And we've seen rising and escalating judgment. The trumpets now have been opened in the seventh seal. And we've worked our way through the first six of those trumpets. And they have brought unimaginable destruction and unthinkable terror as the, dark, the powers of darkness has been loosed upon the earth. And so we have seen um, just an unimaginable series of events Befall the earth. Last week's um, look into Apollyon leading the, sat the, the, the satanic hordes from 
Uh, beneath the earth is, is just unimaginable. And now we hit chapter 10 and we hit a pause, an interlude. This happens three times in the book of Revelation. It's as if we were reading this all at once and we were able to comprehend it all together. We'd like, I need a break. <laughs> I just, let me absorb. This is, this is so much visual stimulus. I, I just need to stop. And in this little break or this time of brevity, I wouldn't know what kind of time this would translate to in, in the actual world. This may be a reprieve for God's grace yet once again for humanity who's at this point refusing to repent to still have the opportunity to do so. So we have a parenthetical section between the sixth trumpet and the seventh and final trumpet that really represents the end, the very end of the age, and then the ushering in of the millennial kingdom. Upon the earth in this time of torment, some have, re some have been saved and repented. We see this group uh, before the throne um, in the previous chapters who have been martyrs. But the multitude of humanity lies in stubborn refusal to repent. There's a great delusion upon the earth that we read from 1 Thessalonians, and, and just many will not. Their opposition to God is entrenched. They still cling to the dark forces that have just sought to destroy them in the events that we've just rehearsed in chapter 9. And the principle we discussed last week was basically this is that humanity has and always will have an insatiable desire to give itself to that which destroys it. The, the, the tribulation is a great time of idolatry. Once again, and people are, are worshiping these dark powers, and, and yet even when these dark powers rise from the earth and persecute them themselves, they still give themselves to them. We can see the same principle today in addiction, in 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 sin that is stubborn and won't go away, that spirals us. We engage in it. It takes us to emptiness and to feel the emptiness. We engage in the sin again. We just have this habit, whether it's temper, alcoholism, lust, whatever, to give ourselves to the thing that destroys us. And we need to overcome that. Now, as we look into chapter 10, specifically, John has a new and another vision. So verse number one, we'll work our way through here just a little bit, not necessarily verse by verse, but in the big ideas. In verse number one, John looks up and he sees another, another meaning in kinder quality, uh, something that he's seen again that is a similar nature. John sees another mighty angel. This is a class of angels that is, that is awesome and wonderful, part of the created order of God. He could be another type of like the four angels that were posited at the four corners of the earth, restraining the elements from destroying the earth. Or perhaps he's like the seraphim that stand before the throne of God, the living ones of unimaginable uh, glory and splendor. Or maybe like the seven great angels who hold the trumpets and God is using to initiate the events of the tribulation. We, we don't know what order he is. He's just great. He is, he is amazing. And the Bible here gives more description to this angel than any other in the book of the apocalypse. We know this. This angel comes down at the initiation of the command of God from heaven. And this angel is clothed. And John's using the language that he has at disposal. He's, he's clothed in like clouds. And, and like for a crown, he has what resembles the colors of a rainbow. And he shines reflecting the Shekinah glory of God. He's a reflection of his master, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's similar 
And, you know, maybe we can understand this if we, if we go back in the book of Isaiah. Uh, we, we see that, you know, Lucifer before he fell was described in very similar fashion, in this amazing beauty. His intended purpose was to reflect God's glory. And here's an angel of similar order. His legs are like pillars of, uh, pillars of fire, and he carries a book. It's, it's the idea of biblios. It's, it's, a, it's a holy book in his hand. The image that John sees is immense in magnitude. And the angel sets a foot upon the land. And then he sets another foot upon the sea. And then he speaks. He utters his voice, which fills the earth with a great force, an ominous warning of the final and great judgment to come, the, the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Echoing the angel's voice or what the Bible calls the seven thunders. This is perhaps the seven being the word, the number of perfection. This perhaps is the very voice of God himself. But, but seven thunders, what sounds like thunder in the ears of John, declare the same warning, the same truth, the same revelation that the end of mankind is near. It's a vision of majesty and glory. Some commentators have presumed that this angel is Jesus Christ, but we know he's called another angel, another in the same kind of angel. And of course, he's just reflecting the majesty of his creator. This is simply a servant, an unimaginable, splendid creature made by Christ, who's given some kind of power of dominion over the earth. You know, in a larger study, we understand that the powers that be are sustained by God, and perhaps He uses angels to some degree to govern the cosmos. But this is for certain, He reflects His Maker, and He is here to sound a warning against the earth. It's amazing. The angels of the Bible stand in far greater grandeur than the gods of Rome and Greece and Babylon. Yet even they are simply a small reflection of the Creator who made them. If this creature could capture our attention like this, imagine the one who is unimaginably greater in the world, our God. All these creature, creatures in comparison to Him are nothing. So the angel represents in many ways the sovereignty, the omnipotence, the power, the governance, the rule of God. And all the events that are transpiring, you have to understand that humankind sees all this happening. They have to be wondering what is happening. And, and God is basically saying these are all happening at my control and my direction. In John's vision, this great angel, perhaps Gabriel, perhaps Michael, I, we don't know, another angel entirely. He raises a hand and he swears and by this commission of God to say what he says, and he, he, he looks upon the earth with one foot on the, on the land and one foot on the sea, the book in his hand, the other hand raised, and he simply says, in response to Daniel's question, it's over. It's done. The consummation of the age is here. This is the third woe, the seventh trumpet. It's the end of the time. The angel says in, in, the Hebrew, in the Greek that there'll be no more delay. It is imminent. The time of God's long suffering and patience is over. The mystery of God is now unfolded and it is worked out. Time will conclude. Christ is coming. The end is here. And, and, and there's something the seven thunders say, perhaps the voice of God that echoes all that the angel has said. Heaven hears it. The earth and the inhabitants hear it. 
And there's a little, there's a little thing just thrown into the text. These seven thunders utter their voice, and John hears it. Whatever was said was amazing, spectacular, terrifying, I don't know. And then there's another voice from heaven that says, don't write that down. It's the only thing that John is told not to write. I don't know what it is. I I don't even really have a heart to speculate. I'm going to assume it has to do something with the judgments that are about to fall. I don't know. It's for the inhabitants of the earth to know in that time. I don't want to be there to know anyway. I just know this, as I've already said, there are some mysteries that belong to God. We don't have to know everything, but that is sealed up. And so John is told not to write. It'll be enough for those of that age. But what John can write and has written is that the seventh angel is about to sound. The idea of mystery of God here is just really a a word. Mystery is used in the Bible to refer to the gospel, the plan. It's really just the overarching plan of God from the creation to the end is at hand. And then all of a sudden something happens. God commands John to move from observer to actor in this vision. And he is commanded to take the book held in the angel's hand. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a reminder of God holding this book in his hand and the Lord Jesus Christ taking it out, handing it to an angel to unfold these events. And here the angel hands this book I, I, the book, again, there's some debate. This could be the open scroll at this point. It could stand for the, the, the book of the apocalypse, which we are reading, or the entirety of the Word of God. But it represents, I know this, it is holy, and it contains God's Word. And so God commands that John move and take this book. It represents, again, the Word of God, the words of the Revelation, this unsealed scroll. It comes from God. And so it is holy and it is true. And John is told to eat it. And the idea here is it's used in the Old Testament many times. It's to mean to partake of it, to to make what it says applicable for your life, to make it true for you. So John is told to eat it, to make it part of himself. I'd say this way, to identify with its truth. And he said, he's told that when you do, in your mouth it'll be sweet. But in your stomach it will be sweet bitter, joy and sorrow, truth and bitterness. This is what is in store for John and the earth. And getting a bit ahead in application, this is really what God has in store for all of those who serve Him today, is a little bit of bitterness, but a whole lot of joy. John is told that the reception Um, is then to be preached, what he hears here, what he receives in the book, it is to be preached. He must continue in his mission. And in his day, that would have been the proclamation of the gospel in the seven churches of Asia Minor and then through the world. And of course, in writing the book that we are reading today. What I want you to do is to understand again, I want you to think back now to Daniel 12. We've already learned from Daniel that this prophet received a special insight from God about the consummation of the age. And I mean by that term, the end of the age. And Daniel had some things that he understood. He understood that the end of the age would come in a time of unparalleled judgment that would last seven years. That it would be a time of unfinished Jewish time. Uh, that, that, th- that time would end with 
everlasting righteousness and a millennial kingdom that the Jewish people longed for. He had some insights in the death of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. He understood to a degree that there would be this abomination of desolation and the Antichrist would rule. But there's still, there's details here. He can't put it all together, which is human nature. And so the question, is, again, is answered. How long? That has been the question of humanity. It's what we're here today. It's what we all want to know, isn't it? How long? There's a bit of curiosity we have. And he understands it'll be the end of this three and a half year period, but he didn't know when. And so God says to him, and so I will say to you, it's not, you, it's not for, years to, for you to know. Let's get the big picture and let's be contented with that as Daniel was told to be. So now what I want you to do is take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel chapter 2. I'm going to show you another parallel chapter. And then I'll make a very brief moment of application. Ezekiel, um, which we'll spend some more time in later, has many parallels to the book of Revelation. The visions that Ezekiel sees are similar in kind. Ezekiel, Daniel, and John had very special insight into the future. And this is a kinder, Ezekiel now has experienced a kinder type of the tribulationary period and what John is told to do here. And, and then I'll, I'll springboard from this to application. So Ezekiel stands in a day of great wickedness, okay? okay? Look up here for a second. Ezekiel's ministering like Jeremiah did in a day of wickedness, a day of rebellion, when the people would not hear. God brought these judgments, the nation has, has, has been technically destroyed, and yet they will not repent. And yet, God tells Ezekiel, you go, you go and minister to them. So, verse 1 of chapter 2. And he said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. And the Spirit entered into me when he spake unto me, and I set upon me, and, I, and set me upon my feet, that I heard him that spake unto me. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even unto this day. So, very similar to the day of, of the tribulations. For they are an impudent, uh, impudent children and are stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. And they, whether they will hear, or whether they will forbear. For they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. Now that's a great preaching text right there. But his point is this, whether they listen to it or not, you're supposed to let them know that there's a God in heaven, and you're my representative. Verse 6. And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns be with thee, um, bitterness. In other words, do your job, even if it's hard. And thou shalt, and thou dost dwell among scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks. Though they be a rebellious house, and thou shalt speak my words unto them, where they, be, where they will hear or whether they will forbear. We're not always going to have a receptive audience, for they are most rebellious. But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee. Be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open thy mouth and eat what he says that I give thee. And when I looked, behold, that hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without. And there was written therein lamentations and mournings and woe. Very likely the same book given to the Apostle John. Moreover, verse 1 of chapter 3, 
Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat that thou findest, eat this roll, and go speak into the house of Israel. So the purpose of receiving was to go do something with the information received. So he opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said to me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. We see similarities here between the text and the experience of John in chapter 10. But in our text of Revelation, here's the, here's the thought. This is the same truth, the same application for John and Ezekiel. It was true for Daniel, and it really is for us. The theme, once again, is of God's sovereignty displayed through this mighty angel and his control over the earth. We learn that God controls in chapter 10 once again. This is a redundant theme in the book of Revelation, that God is sovereign. He is righteous, that He is ruler over that which He has created. And He uses by His choice angelic forces to govern the universe. I would say to us today that the spiritual war, the spiritual world is more part of the physical world than we might understand. And uh, I think that's, that's amazing. But the application for John's audience was... And I want you, this is what we're going to leave with today. That serving God understands that He is in control, and that ages and times and seasons, and that even the, each individual day of our life is under His omnipotent supervision. And that our experience in this fallen world will require that we demonstrate a faith in that reality. I know I have the world's longest points, <laughs> but it makes sense to me. What's the thing? I don't care what you're experiencing today, whether it's the events of today or it's the events of the Great Tribulation. God has a foot here, He has a foot here upon the foundation of the world, and our God's in control. That's what it's saying. It doesn't matter what we experience in life. The earth's being ripped apart from above and below, but God is still sovereign. His powers still rule the world. And so even living in the midst of that, we have a responsibility to live like we understand that. Does that make sense? There's no place for worrying. There's no place for fretting. There's no place in the Christian's life for ungodly priorities. We ought not panic, this refrain, Fear not, fear not, fear not. And yet you and I live in lesser days of fear and we're still worried and we fret and we, and we have all these concerns about life and yet God, His hand controls the universe. What have we to fear? From our study really in, in Psalms chapter 23. You know, I, I'm stretching here for application a little bit, but it's fair based on Ezekiel 2 in this text. Look up here a second. Life, life, you should have this expectation, life for us in Christ will be bittersweet. Now, if you go into it understanding that, you'll, you'll probably navigate it better. Serving God is often bitter, sweet. The Word of God is an unimaginable truth. It's a blessing following it. 
You know, we find salvation in it. We find redemption in it. We find transformation in it. We find blessing. It's through the, the Word of God that one day, you know, we'll enter into heaven because of its truth and the application in Christ. But you and I live in a, a fallen, sinful world. In the period of the tribulation, the saints receive a special immunity from the wrath of God, but not immunity from the wrath of the devil. In other words, your, my life today, spiritually and, and physically, is hid in Christ in God. The, the devil can do nothing to me that, that, that the Lord does not allow. And yet I am still subject to the forces of this planet. If a raindrops falls and I'm outside, it's probably going to hit me on the head. And you and I live in a fallen world, and life for us is going to often be bitter sweet. Not all of it is all going to be a bed of roses. And John is writing to his contemporary audience who, who, who was living in the midst of great persecution. We get an idea of this in First and Second Peter. And they're going through a great trial themselves. And, and, and Peter and John said, fear not. See, see, see God upon His throne. Understand that the consummation is coming. Understand there's a reward for your labor. Don't get caught in the micro. See the macro and understand there's a bigger thing out here for us to appreciate. God holds in His hands the affairs of the world. John is given a unique and singular task in our text to take what he has heard in the Revelation, the Apocalypse, and to write it and to speak that to his generation. Other men received a similar task. But today I want us to understand we also hold an unimaginable treasure and truth in our hands and our hearts. And, when, and in, in having such a treasure, even in an evil world, there comes great responsibility. I want you to look at the final verse of the text. The very final verse of the text, and there's two words here that God says to John in terms of commissioning after he, after he partakes of the book. Okay, and the two words are this, thou must. Okay, thou must. I've given you something, now thou must go and preach it. Thou must go tell. And here's the idea, and you're going to look at this and go, what a wonderful truth, what a blessing. It's going to be sweet. It's going to be precious to you. It's, it's going to be the source of life and inspiration. It's, it's going to give you all you need in life. But as you go out there and live it in the world, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, John, Peter, Paul, it's going to be thorns and briars and bitterness and difficulty sometime. And you need to get it. And don't be delusioned by it. And don't let the problems of the moment take your eyes off the future and all that God is going to do. Words, God intends us to actually believe what we're reading in the book of Revelation. And then live like it today. What manner of men ought we to be seeing that this world one day will be dissolved and anew and made? Um, this is not the kind of encouragement that contemporary churches want to preach, life is hard. But life is hard. Serving Christ isn't easy. But I'll tell you this, it's blessed. It's sweet. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what in an eternity, no matter what your human experience is, 
the sweetness and the blessing is all that's going to remain. And there'll be no more tear, no more sorrow, no more crying. All the bitterness one day is going to be gone. So today, let's serve God with this, these truths. We have a God who has at His command at least one angel <laughs> that can put a foot upon the sea and a foot upon the land and shout so loud that the universe hears it. And we know that there are 10,000s times 10,000s of thousands of thousands of such um, beings at His disposal. Let's not fret. Let's not worry. Let's not care too much about the concerns of life. We have a God who governs that and the beyond that can just speak what He wants by the fiat of His own Word. Let's rest in that truth. Let's, 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 do what, let's rejoice in that truth. Let's be motivated by that. Yes, our journey may be hard. Yes, it may be sometimes difficult, but that is to be expected. 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, when I became pastor of the church, Brother Hardy and I had numbers of conversations. And a whole lot of them were about this. <clears throat> Steal yourself like a man. He talked to me a lot about the bitterness. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to cost you your life. It's going to take all you have. But then as always, it's the greatest thing in all the world. And 20 years later, 25 years later, you know what? I've run into some thorns and briars. None of you are thorns and briars, just other people that are thorns and briars. <laughs> but it's been the greatest thing I've ever done. Raising a family, if you go into it thinking, this is all going to be easy, it's not my family. <laughs> There's times it's hard. But oh, the joy, sweetness, the blessings. Life's worth working through when you have a God who's in control of all that. The difficult moments are worth traversing because when we're following the light and the path that God gives us, we're going to get where we need to go. Even if the path is hard, even if it's bittersweet, the end, the consummation, the eschaton, eternity awaits. And let's, let's actually live in the light of this truth. Let me ask you to stand tonight.